Okay, what if I told you that we can learn a lot about economics from a very unexpected source? Except what if I also told you that you know what this source is and probably every human being on this planet at some point will know what this source is if you don't already. And that's the Bible. In fact, there's a lot that can be learned about economics from the Bible and we go back to the source, the book of Genesis. We can learn about the pitfalls of universal basic income from Adam's existence in the Garden of Eden. You know, Noah, uh, he's famous for building that ark, but it's probably not the most innovative thing he did. Yeah, I know it saved humanity and everything, but I mean, he also invented the plow. And uh, yet there was also some new moral challenges that that innovation uh, brought in to the world. We're going to learn about how Abraham... uh, used what we might call modern game theory. Isaac actually learned how to shift his business from livestock to farming. Jacob, uh, his experience with the Wellstone is tied to what some might call the prisoner's dilemma and trust. And of course, Joseph saved his family, saved all of Egypt from famine, but he missed a couple steps that ultimately emptied the Egyptians' lives of meaning. And We're going to talk about all of this with an upcoming guest here on the Agents of Innovation podcast, Michael Eisenberg. Michael is no joke. Michael is a venture capitalist who was born and raised in Manhattan, but soon after graduating college in the early 1990s, him and his wife moved to Israel. Michael now was born and raised in a great Jewish household. His father was a rabbi as well as a businessman. And his mother was an entrepreneur as well. So Michael has the foundations of his faith coupled with his experience as a venture capitalist. And he has helped invest in a lot of companies, some you may know and some you might not know, because at the end of the day, venture capitalism is a lot about taking risk and investing in a lot of things that take off and some things that don't. But he has observed a lot of things in the economy And he is going to come on here and talk to us about it. He's put out an awesome new book. I read the whole thing before the interview. It's called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. You know, when I see something like this, to be quite honest with you, I think "Eh, it's probably just some religious guy who thinks uh, he's put together some principles. Michael has done an amazing job actually uncovering a lot of things. He has put a new layer on the book of Genesis for me. Um, I mean, it just the things that just come alive through his uh, book are just, just amazing. So if you're coming from a religious perspective, I think you will find a lot out of this book that you probably didn't know existed in the Bible and what uh, God is trying to teach you through a lot of the stories going back to Adam all the way through Joseph in Egypt. Um, And then I think if you're not necessarily a religious person, but you're somebody who says, hey, you know what? We need some ethics uh, in our society, in our market economy. You know, we can't just uh, be, you know, sort of vulture capitalist in a way, right? This is a great book for you as well. And and who knows, maybe it'll even awaken uh, some faith as, as well. I mean, I mean, who knows? But this is a really great book. I highly recommend it, The Tree of Life and Prosperity. So Michael's going to join us here in just a few minutes. One of the um, things that we do on the Agents of Innovation podcast as well, this is episode 96, holy cow, 96 episodes. Uh, Well, way back on a previous episode, I had uh, an amazing musician um, named Andrew Leahy. Andrew uh, is in Nashville, Tennessee these days, and he has a brand new album out um you know he's he didn't waste his time during quarantine let me tell you this guy went to work and uh his album uh is coming out but he's releasing different singles and his first single off this album is called good at gone and we're going to play that single at the end of this episode so look for andrew Leahy, good at gone you know andrew is actually one of the uh featured innovators in my new community called fearless journeys And this is a community for aspiring and ascending entrepreneurs as well as travel enthusiasts. And we are connecting you with some of my previous podcast guests who have now become featured innovators in the Fearless Journeys community. The idea here is you're going to learn directly from them. Every month we have group coaching sessions uh, where the innovator comes on a, a virtual live Zoom session and you get to 
hear from them, talk to them, have conversations, learn and grow with them and with other members in the Fearless Journeys community. Uh, In addition, we have a book of the month club. And every month we go through a different book. I send you a weekly book club summary so you can keep up with everybody and be motivated to stay on pace. Last month, we finished uh, one of my favorite books called Atomic Habits. And this month, we're just now starting um, The Intention Experiment by Lynn McTaggart. This came recommended by Shannon Slevin, who is one of our featured innovators in the community and also a previous guest of the Agents of Innovation podcast. And Shannon is the CEO of WellFest. And she really, um, this has been a book that's very been very impactful to her. So she actually recommended it. And she's going to come on a live book club session with us on November 18th. And so if you join the Fearless Journeys community at fearlessjourneys.org, you can get uh, the information on how to join us for that book club session and talk live with Shannon on the, uh, on the call. Also, one of our very early podcast guest here on the Ages of Innovation podcast, Amy Gearhart. I believe she was on episode two. Uh, She is going to come on. She's also a featured innovator in the Fearless Journeys community. And on October 28th, she's going to lead us in a group coaching session on the topic, Making Fear Your Friend. So um, perfect topic for the Fearless Journeys community. We're going to learn how to work with our fears. And um, again, if you want to join uh, that session on October 28th. Make sure you wake, make your way over to fearlessjourneys.org and join the community. There's a free newsletter for anybody that wants to join that, um, but there's also some membership levels for those who want to come on and actually interact with other people, including coming on some of our group trips. And we have an upcoming group trip on November 10th through the 16th to Guatemala. So you can check that out as well. I also want to thank um, our first sponsor here uh and the Fearless Journeys community and the Agents of Innovation podcast, and that is Dan Lesniak. Uh, Dan, along with his wife, Carrie Scholl, has built the number one selling real estate team in the DMV, that's the the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, helping over 1,000 buyers and sellers each year. Dan is also a best-selling real estate author and co-founder of the Hyperfast Agent podcast and coaching program. And his latest venture, Dan has raised nearly $15 million in equity from investors to acquire and develop over 200 condo units in the Washington, D.C. area. We are grateful Dan is not only one of the more than 45 featured innovators that you can connect with in the Fearless Journeys community, but he's also chosen to invest in this community as a sponsor. So thank you, Dan uh, Lesniak. Make sure you check him out. um, Hyper Fast Agent Podcast and the Hyper Fast Agent Coaching Program. Um, And anyway, I just want to thank you for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Um, I encourage you to join the Fearless Journeys community to connect with some of these amazing innovators that we're bringing to you on the podcast and that that we've brought to you over the last six years. Um, And you you can find everything at fearlessjourneys.org. And definitely check out this book by Michael Eisenberg, uh, The Tree of Life and Prosperity. It's something I'm going to be using, I think, for a very long time. And it's definitely impacted me in the way now that I look at economics. So here we go, episode 96 with Michael Eisenberg. Okay, I want to welcome my guest today on the Agents of Innovation podcast, Michael Eisenberg. He is the general partner at Aleph. Uh, They are an equal partnership and early stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. Uh, Michael is, uh, I think you're from New York, right, Mike? I am. I'm originally from New York. Originally from New York, but back in uh, the early 90s, he and his wife moved to Israel, where he is joining me from Israel today. He's in Tel Aviv at his office there. Um, Mike has been writing uh, for quite a long time, in addition to his venture capital work. Uh, He's got a, a great new book, which I just finished called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. Um, And this uses a great framework uh, to talk about the words and actions of the Hebrew patriarchs to lay the foundations uh, for a modern growth economy based on timeless business principles and values. And we're going to get into that book uh, in a few. Mike, I also understand, how how many kids do you have? Because I've lost track. 
I have eight children, but if you mention my writing, I did a poor job at the beginning of like my blog writing. I called my blog six kids in a full-time job, and it turned out it wasn't scalable because we had two more children. So yeah. I hope they're not I was insulted. Ask you, are, you tr are you trying to rebuild the 12 tribes of Israel? Are you, we got more <laughs> coming at any time? <laughs> I'm in the grandchild phase of life already. We have three grandchildren, so uh, oh, not sure we're getting to the 12 kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, wow, you got, you got grandkids now and everything. You're too young for grandkids, I think, but... Uh, but that's great. I guess you started young. Um, so tell us a little bit, uh, Mike, uh, you know, this, this was a great book. Um, I was telling uh, Andrew, who, who works with you, uh, you know, um, I thought, you know, ahead of some of these podcasts, it's hard to read a whole book every time you interview somebody. Um, but I, I, I thought, okay, I'll read the introduction. You know, it was, a, it was a pretty nice, sizable introduction, really gives a great overview of your, of your thesis and some of the main points and principles you're laying out. But boy, it was such a fascinating introduction. I said, let me, let me read the next chapter and then the next chapter. And you really, you go from, um, you go through the entire um, Old Testament. Not, I'm sorry, not the Old Testament, the entire book of Genesis. Um, all the stories from the Garden of Eden all the way to Joseph and everything in between. And so it was, uh, it was great. And so, you know, as somebody who enjoys reading the Bible and diving into it more, I think just from a biblical perspective, it was fascinating because now I have a, a completely different view, not a different view, an added view and another layer of how I can understand uh, the book of Genesis. And then, but, but also I, you know, I teach economics and entrepreneurship and innovation down here. Uh, this year, I'm a visiting professor at the University of uh, Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala City. Um, and so as I, you know, I'm trying to more understand economics and entrepreneurship and innovation and also help others understand it such as my students, I'm like, wow, what another layer of understanding to, to apply these moral foundations. So thanks for writing this book. I think everybody should check it out. Um, and I want to go back, Mike, to the beginning of your career, and maybe we can get back to the book. Um, so you were born and raised in New York City, right? Um, tell us a little bit about your experience growing up there. And one thing I always like to learn about my guests since you since mostly a lot of people listening to this are interested in entrepreneurship was also what was your first job in life and what did you learn from it yeah so i grew up in manhattan and francisco thanks for having me this is a wonderful opportunity it's the first podcast i've done with anyone sitting in guatemala that's for sure um and and so i grew up in, in new york my family's actually been in new york for for many generations in new york and new jersey area um and on the west side of manhattan for for generations uh, and I had an Orthodox Jewish upbringing uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, went to a Jewish day school there and a Jewish high school. Uh, already by, I think it was the eighth grade, I had my first job um, uh, where I worked in a cheese store, cheese and fish store called Miller's Cheese on 78th Street and Broadway uh, in New York, uh, where I started doing deliveries and and slicing cheese and fish and handing out to customers. And you, you learn a lot from that because retail is an amazing place to meet people and meet customers and meet kind of the diversity of life that walks the New York City streets and especially Broadway. And uh, people would walk in and people would have orders and they were difficult to deal with inevitably. Um, but it was, you know, a good lesson in hard work and you work for very minimum wage uh, at the time. And I, and I thought it was amazing. I actually did that for five or six years. Um, wow. And then uh, was that at? I think I started at 13, 14, 14, probably 14, I think it was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, all the way through till I was 17, 18, so maybe it was at, how was that? Maybe three or four years then. Um, and uh, especially intense around holiday times, uh, it got really intense in, in, in the food retail world. And so, and then I started college in uh, 19, uh, let's see, 1988. Uh, I did my freshman year of college in New York at Yeshiva University, and then I took a gap year to go to Israel to study in the Yeshiva, which is a house of Bible study uh, in Israel. Uh, one year turned into two. Uh, I ended up spending two years and a couple of uh, months, another fall uh, here in Israel at this uh, Yeshiva, and that was a transformational experience for me, candidly. And um, then I went back and finished college, uh, another two years of college at Yeshiva University in New York. Uh, and within eight weeks of graduation, I got, I, I graduated, I got married and uh, my, my wife and I moved to Israel. Wow. That's really amazing. You know, uh, I've talked about this before on this podcast, but I, I went to Israel and, uh, just three years ago and, uh, what an incredible place. And 
people ask me, you know, I've, I think I've been now to 24 countries, uh, 47 states, and people say, what's the best place you've traveled to? And I said, that's a very hard question, but if I had to give you a place, it's Israel. I mean, what an amazing place. You know, everything from the food and the culture and the people and, of course, the history. I mean, I'm a huge into history and, the, and of course, the biblical history. Um, and, and then just, I mean, it, where you're at in Tel Aviv is such a contrast to where you live in Jerusalem, right? And so... <laughs> I mean, totally. like totally. But but I when we went to Tel Aviv on the very last, you know, two days of the trip after going all around the rest of Israel, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in Miami Beach or something with the, uh, like Miami Beach meets Silicon Valley or something. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Israel is a diverse country. People don't realize, um, you know, Jerusalem is a much more traditional city. Tel Aviv is, a you know, a big party, super innovative city. Um, the food is amazing here uh, of all stripes and uh it you know it's it's just a remarkable country so you um you studied um i understand political science in college is that right that's reasonably fair to say my degree is in political science whether i studied it's a matter of great debate well i i also read in your book you uh you edited uh the college newspaper there yeshiva and also you said in, in addition to majoring in uh political science you you actually studied the torah quite a bit I did. I, you know, what I was most interested in college was uh, studying uh, Talmudic texts and, and the Torah, the Bible, and uh, editing the newspaper. Uh, I also got a degree alongside of that in political science and took some courses in uh, Jewish philosophy and philosophy in general. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a wonderful time of, of my life, uh, but primarily because of the Torah study and the, uh, and the editing of the newspaper. Well, it sounds like you... Um... Growing up, maybe maybe it was your parents and others in your community. Uh, you really seemed like you got you you grew up with really good foundational values that were instilled within you early. That's that's my impression from. from it, it totally is. By the way, I'll tell you an interesting. This this will be good for your listeners. Um, I got my love of studying Torah from my father, who was an ordained rabbi, but became a lawyer, and uh, has now gone back in his uh, retirement from law to being a rabbi. Um, and uh, my mother was entrepreneurial. Uh, always was started businesses after she got a degree, but she had a, she had a great parenting lesson for us. It always bothered me this, this thing she used to say. And like, when I turned 40, I, I called her and said, I think you were right, mom. She used to say that she prayed to have mediocre children. I, I thought I was like terribly insulting. Um, but she, she often said that the line between uh, amazingly accomplished and, and incredibly intelligent and crazy on the other hand is very thin line. And so, <laughs> She prayed for mediocre children. I think that was actually a good parenting lesson. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there, yeah, there's a lot we can go into there with leadership and pride and all sorts of temptations that come with, with in that area. Uh, so I could see how she could say that. Um, now, you mentioned you immigrated with your wife to Israel in 93 when you moved there and you had previously visited. What, what was your main motivation for moving there? So during that two-year gap, two gap years that I was in Israel, I had an, uh, an interaction with a rabbi who stood, stood at the head of the institution that, that changed my views on a lot of things. I, I had asked him as a, as a student of the Bible would if he thought there was a greater commandment uh, to settle the land of Israel in, a, in an unpopulated place or you could move to like a populated city like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and it'd be the same kind of fulfillment of the commandment. And um, he looked at me and kind of said, no, that's total nonsense. Um, what you need to do is uh, move to Israel and set up a factory that will employ 10,000 people to earn an honest and decent living. And to hear this kind of economic point about economic empowerment uh, from a rabbi was jarring to me. I, I never heard anything like that from a faith figure. And so uh, kind of on the spot, I said, oh, that sounds like a really interesting challenge. I'm going to move to Israel and try to set up a factory to employ 10,000 people. And then I went back to finish my degree and then moved to Israel with the goal of, of creating 10,000 jobs. And that's kind of been my life pursuit ever since is to create as many jobs as possible where people can earn an honest and decent living. So you, you decided to go uh, and do that through the role of a, a venture capitalist. And uh, you well, mentioned in the book, oh, go ahead. Well, not exactly. I actually started in political consulting, but a year plus in political consulting convinced me that you don't create jobs with that. <laughs> and so then I had to get, I was fired and then I had to get into something else. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, so you, so uh, um, you you mentioned that venture capitalists are that that you service entrepreneurs. Uh, you mentioned this in your book, and uh, can you tell us more about the role 
of venture capital in entrepreneurship and why you decided to go into that realm? I mean, you, you just mentioned that you went out of the political consulting realm, but why do you yeah. use uh, this area? So I think, I think the role of venture capitalists is one to provide the capital, which today seems obvious because the world is awash in capital, but when I got started, certainly wasn't to provide the capital for some of the most ambitious projects out there, stuff that uh, normal financial instruments don't don't fund. Uh, and at the same time, it's to help the entrepreneur build the company, build the management, find the talent, build a network that helps the entrepreneurship because we're in this in an iterative game, meaning we fund a lot of companies and the entrepreneur has a singular focus. So we have an opportunity to build a broader network and put that to the service of of the entrepreneur. Um, and I think another kind of important part of the venture capital uh, business is, as my partner Kevin Harvey once said, uh, to lower the mountains and raise the valleys, because this is a hell of a roller coaster to build a company. Uh, and, and so you kind of need to smooth that ride and, and be there for, for the entrepreneur. Um, and it would be um, inaccurate to say I thought of all of this or any of this before I got into it. I, like I said, I, I was let go from my job in political consulting and was unemployed, uh, couldn't find a job. And so I started something that turned into like a merchant bank venture capital fund for for Israeli high tech back in 1995 when the high tech industry was just getting started. So, you know, I, I can't call that a lot of forethought. That was. Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about uh, I, that you went into political consulting first. Um, I actually really liked this quote uh, that you had in the book because a lot of people do turn to government or politicians for the answers, but you really talk about that. Actually, this is what separates entrepreneurs from politicians. And you said, most politicians focus on present needs. In general, they react. They contend over today's voters, not over what kind of society their children and grandchildren will live in. I prefer the approach of entrepreneurs who see the world in terms of what could be and tackle a problem that they want to solve. These entrepreneurs think of their product in terms of how much it will help and how many people will buy, use, adopt, and gain benefit from it? Just thought that yeah. was an enlightening quote. You know, I have a friend, his name is Eugene Kendall. He was uh, the chief economist of the prime minister here uh, when Netanyahu was the prime minister. And he once said to me that politicians are, are measured on a very uh, simple KPI. It's called votes in the next election. And, and that causes a lot of short-term thinking. And... I think short-term thinking gets us in a lot of trouble in general. It gets businesses in a lot of trouble. It gets economies in a lot of trouble. And I think entrepreneurs, particularly those that are backed by venture capital, uh, need to take a longer-term view. It takes a while to build a company, and you kind of, you know, to use a Wayne Gretzkyism, skate to where the puck is going, which is what they do, and, and that, that requires a longer-term view. And for what it's worth, I think that's part of kind of the biblical narrative, which is the future is going to be better. We can create a much better future. We need a longer time horizon that doesn't necessarily maximum kind of short-term thrills or votes as the case may be, but takes a longer view of what we want for our children and grandchildren and then try to create that future. And I think, you know, that's really the job of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, what I love about your book, again, to go back to uh, the stories, all the biblical stories. And, you know, I think a lot of times those who approach uh, the Torah or the, the book of Genesis, you know, you, we view it, uh, we're looking for, for, for more, you know, to solve moral questions, right? But you also look at it to solve some economic questions, which also can be moral. And but what I love is what you were just talking about. Um, and, 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 you know, I actually finished the book yesterday. And so I, I, it's really fresh on my mind, this, the last two chapters, uh, two of, I think two of the last three chapters on, uh, on, with the story of Joseph. And jo what I also love in the book is how you position a lot of these people that we know as biblical figures like Noah and Joseph as innovators, right? I'd never really thought about them as innovators, but they were real human beings during really pivotal times in human history. Um, and yet, even though Joseph was such an innovator um, and, and, and helped, you know, the, uh, the Pharaoh with the uh, uh, preparing for the seven years of famine, and, but you also talk about the centralization of the economy and what he did and how the first you know, he did, he did, he did, uh, you know, solve something presently, but there were some after effects that maybe he didn't foresee. So even when you have a smart, innovative thinker sort of in charge of everything, if, if you will, 
uh, a lot of times they still don't know what the side effects are going to be or the after effects. So uh, if you want to maybe talk about that a little bit more um, and, and how that, that works with, with, with that. Sure. But maybe I'll go back to your first point to get started, which is, sure. uh, that, you know, all these characters are kind of innovative. Um, we kind of lose sight of it because we treat them as individual protagonists. But if you read the book of Genesis, you can, you can really clearly see that Noah was an innovator. Most people say, hey, Noah, who was he? He built the ark, got out of the flood. But as I point out in the book, and the sages point this out, Noah clearly invented the plow or something like that, that uncorked human prosperity uh, for a meaningful period of time, causing humanity to grow. Uh, my claim in the book is Noah was responding to an ancient Thomas Malthus, uh, who, who, for whom the Malthusian trap is, is, is named, uh, who basically says there won't be enough food to feed humanity if it keeps growing. And th that happens in every generation. We have that now again, um, you know, like uh, AOC, for example, in the U.S. Congress, you know, we're not going to have enough food to feed the world. Stop having children. Um, and that existed in Noah's time, too. He uncorks prosperity by inventing the plow and then he invents something else, fermentation. Uh, we all know that when there are floods, there's no good drinking water. And, and wine was the water of the ancients because it was alcoholic and clean. And Noah is the first one to do that. But both of these innovations, um, which could be used for good, were also used for bad, right? In the case of the plow, humanity uh, destroyed itself from prosperity. In the case of wine, his son abused him. And then we find Isaac, who innovates certain well drilling. Uh, I proved that through the verses and the, and the uh, well digging um, uh, practices of the time. And, you know, he becomes a successful farmer. And then Jacob innovates breeding, right? He has special breeding techniques that enable him to walk away with his father-in-law's uh, flock fortune and all his animals. And then getting to Joseph, who was, who was the subject of what you asked me, uh, Joseph, and I won't get into the whole story, uh, you know, innovates long-term storage and preserving wheat, um, which was before that unpreservable, which is why his brothers were afraid of his dream about the wheat stalks because agrarian economies are, no, are notoriously fickle to the seasons, uh, whereas uh, flocks and shepherding is less seasonal. And so Joseph innovates long-term surge and, and wheat preservation. And through this, he manages to get through the seven-year famine. Now, because he centrally controlled all the distribution of the wheat um, and the injections of liquidity in the economy, into the economy, he saved the Egyptian people initially, and that was his intention and amazing. But when we inject a lot of liquidity in the economy, when we centralize the economy, every shock to the economy shocks the system um, systemically. And therefore, the kind of unforeseen, unforeseens um, uh, are more dramatic than ever because the whole system is centralized and thereby very fragile. And so Joseph was unable to uh, foresee a lot of the negative consequences, some of them psychological, some of them population transfer, and, and some of them economic um, from his policy. And it became hard to restart the economy after the depression, after the famine. And when it became hard to restart the economy, they started to look for a scapegoat. That often happens. People who are in trouble after economic depressions look for a scapegoat. You don't look any further than Occupy Wall Street or a lot of the populism going on over the last six or seven years uh, to understand that when economies uh, have a lot of central injection of capital or liquidity to the markets, uh, wealthier people get wealthier. And then the populists come out and look for scapegoats. And that happened to Joseph too. So, oh, he's a Hebrew, let's get after the Hebrews and enslave them. And that became yet another function of the economy. And the centralization called the, caused the enslavement, you know, likely of the, of the children of Israel, of the Hebrews. Yeah, well, no, that's it's very fascinating. What what I really love about your book, like I said, is um, you know it's really an explanation of you know free market economics, um, but paired with the necessity for having a moral foundation that needs to go with that. Um, and in recent years, you kind of alluded to a couple of the recent political and economic debates, um, you know, including the idea of social justice. Um, we see, you know we see a lot of disparities in wealth. Um, we see maybe. Many complaining, you know, I think in the, the, that sort of populism has arisen out of many seeing a lot of opportunities drying up in the economy. Uh, technology has certainly been very disruptive. Um, you know, it's, it's helped us, it's innovated, it's made our lives better, but obviously it's disrupted a lot of previous uh, 
industries. Um, and you know, some might say that jobs maybe uh, in the United States, for example, may be going overseas, things like that. There's debates about minimum wage and healthcare benefits and how much individuals or companies should profit or not. Um, and so we got all sorts of debates, but actually all these debates already involved a moral arguments, right? We're talking about if you're whether whatever side you're on on the minimum wage debate, for example, it's a moral argument to be had either way. Um, so a lot of times we forget that there, there are these moral arguments in economics. Uh, and I think you really talk about that moral foundation that's needed. Um, I really like uh, you bringing us economics through biblical stories. You start in the Garden of Eden, where you say that, you know, today we're talking about the idea of universal basic income. And you said that 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 first experiment was actually in the Garden of Eden. Can you uh, maybe you want to talk about that story, but just illuminate a little bit more about what you're doing with the economics and and, the, and bringing the moral foundations uh, to, to what we need in our society. Yeah, I want to I want to make a very specific point on that, if I can, which is um, the, the principles that that I advocate for, I believe, are timeless. Now, I think part to your point, I think, is very, very accurate what you said, which is if you look at the minimum wage discussion, everyone's kind of arguing for morals uh, or their own view of them. The question is, what are those morals? And in today's day and age, we have a lot of what I would call relativism of morals. It's kind of ha um, how we manage to put people in a penalty box so quickly or what they're now calling cancel culture. And the, the thing I'm advocating for is the Torah, the Bible, has timeless principles that have stood the test of time. The Bible has more unique users than Google and Facebook combined. I say that in the introduction of the book over history. These are things that have stood the test of time and created successful, cohesive, responsible societies and economies. And I think for what it's worth, what I call in, in the book on Leviticus, which has come out in Hebrew but hasn't made it to English yet, um, the responsibility economy is really what the Bible is advocating for. Now, the responsibility economy is not an economy of post facto, post facto equity. We're not looking to redistribute the playing field. The Bible doesn't believe that the economy is a zero-sum game where we need to cut it up differently, but the size is the same. It believes the economy can grow through empowerment. And what we're looking to do is empower more and more members of society to become wealthier, more creative, more successful over time because we can grow the pie. That's fundamental to the biblical outlook. Also fundamental to the biblical outlook, which you touched on, is the importance of being creative and creating, thereby advancing the economy, thereby advancing humanity. And the Bible uh, thinks that general human impulses can be used for good and can be used for bad. And so, uh, the Hebrew Bible puts limits on general impulses, right? So they're even on sexual behavior, their impulses, certain times of the month, not when a woman is menstruating, and uh, who you can have intercourse and sexual relations with. And the same thing is true of the economy. It's not any different. Um, we have impulses. They're good. We want to be creative. But okay, what do we do with it? And how do we empower people? So going back to the story of the Garden of Eden, um, Man is put in the Garden of Eden and provided what I call their universal basic income. Everything kind of works. The wheat grows and you can eat the wheat straight out of the ground and the fruits grow. And he's got everything he needs to uh, live. Subsistence, income. Um, interestingly, in the Garden of Eden, man makes nothing. Uh, he doesn't make products and he doesn't make babies. There are no children in the Garden of Eden. Man neither creates nor procreates. Uh, in the Garden of Eden. Not only that, they're so bored because they have nothing to do that his wife never says a word to him, nor does he say a word to his wife. She only talks to the serpent. They're terribly bored. And so the Garden of Eden is more like a failed experiment than it is a some sort of idyllic future that we aspire to. It's a place where man fails and has moral failings um, and kind of breaks boundaries by eating from the tree of good and bad. Once expelled from the Garden of Eden, man has children, the highest form of creation. Man makes bread. By the way, we think of man as being cursed, uh, particularly in Christian theology, original sin. Um, but 
the, the actual words of the Bible are that the land is cursed, not man. And the land is cursed so that man should work it and man should create from it. And the first time we encounter bread is after man is expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now, what is bread? Bread is the mixture of grounded wheat and water. It's a created product, whereas the wheat, what is called the grass of the land in the Garden of Eden, just grows and eats it straight out of the ground. So by being forced to work, man becomes creative, and this begins to advance humanity. Man left to his own devices on a subsistent income will create exactly nothing. And I know there are kind of modern prophets, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and others who, who think we ought to provide universal basic income because this will unleash human creativity. I can guarantee you it will unleash indolence and boredom and make humanity much less creative. Well, you, um, going on that note, you talk about the value of hard work, that, how it's expressed in the Bible, including in the, in the story of the Garden of Eden. Um, can you tell us what God is trying to tell, to teach us about hard work uh, from the beginning of time and how can we apply uh, those lessons today? Yeah, there's a notion that we work to make money. Um, and so if we give people money, therefore, they don't need to work. No, we work because the human being needs to create, just like God created the world in six days or six epochs. Um, we, need to, uh, we need to create. That's our job. And we need to work to advance the world. And not just that. When we work, we achieve dignity because we've created something and made it ours. Um, when, when, when Eve has the first child, she names him Cain or Cain, which in Hebrew means uh, I own something and I, I own my man from God, meaning I've created something. It's fundamental. And that's fundamental to human dignity and it's fundamental to human progress. Work itself matters. And by the way, the Jewish view of charity is not what they call alms for the poor. Um, it's not that you give out money. The Jewish view of charity, the biblical view of charity, is you enable people to work with dignity. So you know, in, in one example, um, we empower people to be successful. You know, the, the farmer is commanded to leave a corner of his field, this is in Leviticus, uh, unharvested. Why? Because then the poor person comes and they actually harvest the field. They have to work in order to get the wheat. And they have to look like a worker because that gives them dignity and it teaches them a skill. Another form of, of Jewish charity is uh, free loans. Who do you provide a loan to? Not to somebody who's not working because they'll never pay it back. You provide it to somebody to empower them to build a business that we hope will have profits and pay back the loan. So I'm giving you cheap credit to build a business, not for charity, because I expect you to work and create a bigger and larger economy and more productivity and then pay it back. Yeah, so um, what can we learn uh, from the story of Noah? Uh, you mentioned it a little bit more uh, regarding how innovation must have moral or ethical, ethical principles alongside of it. Okay, so back to Noah for a second. Uh, Noah. So everyone knows Noah created an ark. Why did he create an ark? Because it was a flood, and then he took his family and the animals, two by two, into the ark, and eventually they exit after the flood. That's our kind of view of Noah. But Noah starts before the flood. And uh, Noah, and I won't chronicle how I get to this through the text, but you have to read the book for that. But Noah is kind of responding to the Thomas Malthus of his generation who thinks that there's not enough food to feed humanity. And then Noah invents something the sages say, and I think it's obvious from the verses, is the plow. And through that, he uncorks this human prosperity. But then humanity destroys itself. People begin to have lots of, uh, 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 of kids, but begin to become kind of unrestrained, uh, rapacious beasts. Uh, who uh, come after uh, uh, women uh, and, other, and other negative traits of society. And societal trust becomes eroded as people begin to cheat each other. And so Noah invents the plow, unleashes prosperity, but humanity destroys itself. After the flood, Noah exits the ark and plants a vineyard, and he makes wine. Now, wine's an amazing thing because wine, we know this, by the way, even today, when there are floods, there's no clean water. So how do you find water to drink? Alcohol is clean water. It always is. Alcohol cleans things. And so Noah invents wine after the flood, and that's clean water. Wine was the water of the ancients. And uh, wine is an amazing thing because it's clean water, and we use it at weddings and other celebrations and religious events for good. But if you become drunk, it can be used for bad. So here we have two innovations of Noah. 
the plow and wine that are what I, what I would call the first dual use technologies. They can be used for good or for bad. Um, and uh, Noah, unfortunately, through his innovation, uncorks bad. And why does this happen? Because he didn't accompany these innovations with timeless principles. And those timeless principles only come into the world with the advent of Abraham 10 generations after Noah. And so in a world devoid of morals and timeless principles, Noah's innovations will go bad. And therefore, modern innovations, think synthetic biology, cryptocurrencies, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, if they're not undergirded by timeless principles, will necessarily go awry, just like Noah's innovations. And we need to get about that work because innovation is accelerating and human changing innovation is accelerating. Yesterday, I participated in a panel uh, where somebody said that just like there's a nuclear non-proliferation agreement in the world, there's going to be an AI non-proliferation agreement in the world going forward. Um, and I didn't have time to ask him. What I wanted to ask him was, okay, that sounds interesting. People break the nuclear non-proliferation agreement, first of all. But second of all, what are the principles and timeless principles underpinning that AI non-proliferation agreement? And I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'd like to understand what the principles are, because if we get them wrong, it could go really bad. Well, I really liked the story, and I think it's emblematic of the fact that you, you I mean, these are stories of thousands and thousands of years old, and, uh, and yet they're timeless, right? They're, t they're timeless lessons for us today. We, you know, I live primarily when I'm not in Guatemala, and you're from the United States uh, before you went to Israel, but the United States, you know, uh, perhaps the wealthiest country in the history of, of all time. And such a place of innovation, too, right? Mostly because most of the United States, we've had a lot of freedom to innovate. Um, and you have a lot of hardworking, industrious people who are creative and doing all sorts of things. Uh, by the way, a lot of amazing innovation coming out of Israel, too, probably for a lot of the same reasons. But um, the yet, when we reach a level of material wealth, we can become corrupted by it. We could also become lazy by it, I think, as well. And so... You really do need these the, the moral fabric of the society to sustain, um, you know, the economic output, but uh, but to make sure it's done in a in the right way, right? So that you're not just innovating to innovate sake, but you're innovating for a proper moral uh, good in society. The, the Bible is primarily worried about um, prosperity and not poverty, um, which is the Bible wants people to be prosperous but is afraid of the impacts of prosperity, that people will become uh, haughty, uh, rapacious, um, uh, not helpful to others, selfish, etc. And so, you know, the, the, all the patriarchs in the Bible are extraordinarily wealthy people. That's in the verses in the, in the Bible. Um, there's an expectation that as the people enter the land of Israel, they will become wealthy. And, and this is an aspiration, by the way. They'll become successful and wealthy, etc. But um, we aspire to that, but we don't aspire to it without the responsibility that comes with it. And this responsibility is not just about kind of managing it paternalistically on behalf of others, as Andrew Carnegie suggested in his, in his famous treatise on wealth, but, but rather to empower other people to become successful as well. It's what I call in the book on Leviticus, uh, the responsibility economy or the fraternity economy, which is, um, it is my responsibility civic responsibility um, when you become successful or as you're becoming successful or through your entire life to enable other people's people to become successful and this is other countries etc now to the point you made earlier freedom is an important part of this by the way because if you're not free you own nothing uh, that's an important lesson of the bondage in egypt and uh, if you're not free, you own nothing. I think we found that out from China recently, right? When they stopped the Ant.com IPO and Jack Ma disappeared for a while. I heard he reappeared in Europe this week. And um, it's, it's, we need freedom. Freedom is the engine of curiosity. Freedom is the engine of aspiration. Freedom is the engine of ownership. And ownership gives me the opportunity to be responsible for somebody else. And I think that's the most important aspiration. Yeah, by the way, uh, just a few months back, I actually read the book. Um, the author's name is escaping me. You, you probably know it, the, uh, Thou Shalt Innovate. Um, and no. it's, all about, it's all about Israel and the startup, uh, a lot of, uh, just a lot of the innovation going on in Israel. So, uh, um, but anyway, 
tell, tell us a little bit more about Israel, what's going on there today. Uh, you're a venture capitalist, so you're, you've been investing a lot of companies. Actually, I didn't even do the rundown of some of the companies, but you, um, Olive has invested in more than 40 companies, including Melio, Lemonade, Bring, Joytunes, Healthy.io, and Nexer. Nexer. Um, so tell us about what you're seeing um, in, in Israel with, with how much innovation is going on there and, 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 the, and the economy. This is the absolute golden age of Israeli innovation. I'm, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never seen anything like what's going on right now. Um, number one, entrepreneurs are aspiring for global greatness in a way that wasn't true before. When Dan Senor and, and Saul Singer wrote the book Startup Nation, uh, they talked about the model where things are innovated but then sold, which was true. By the way, those guys are like my heroes because they're one of the few people in the history of humanity to brand a country. Um, and, you know, by calling it Startup Nation, they told a narrative that said Israelis create technology and sell it to global giants and it kind of regenerates itself. But right now, Israelis are aspiring to build world-beating companies, what I like to call scale-up nation, um, and global brands from Israel. When we started Aleph, that's what we wanted to do. We thought there was a moment in time also where the technologies that became important to the world were found in, in, in unbelievable abundance in Israel, machine vision, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and a lot of cross-disciplinary work um, that, that Israelis are particularly good at. And so, um, we set up Olive to go invest in those things. But the other thing we discovered along the way is um, Israel is really about innovation with a soul. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain this for a second. So I think the 20th century, which is kind of where we brought the industrial revolution to fruition and moved humanity forward tremendously was about factories. And Detroit became Detroit because of factories. And by the way, originally Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley because they could produce silicon. And, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, the 21st century is a digital economy, so it's about brains. And uh, I said yesterday in an interview uh, for one of the Israeli papers that we're in World War III for talent because we need brains. And brains, you know, are the power behind the intellectual property economy, the software economy, the digital economy, whatever you want to call it. Turns out a remarkable biological fact that brains are connected to bodies and bodies have hearts and souls. And so if you want to attract the best brains, you probably ought to uh, talk to people's hearts and souls. Um, it's not just an intellectual challenge, it's what do you connect to humanly? What do you aspire to do? And so I've been inspired by, you know, Yonatan Adiri, who's the founder of Healthy.io, who's trying to create home diagnostics via just the smartphone, and Aaron Shear who's found a, a really economical way to scale machine vision, to see all the roads in the world, uh, quickly and, and, and prevent car accidents. And he pitched the smartest minds in the world to come to Nexar because they could prevent car accidents. You know, until you got the smartest minds in the world to stop chronic kidney disease. And Matan Bar at Melio, uh, the tagline of the company is keeping small business in business. If we improve small business cash flow, they can be in business longer and be more successful and empower people to be, be better. And I, I just find these missions tremendously inspiring and value creating. And so I think Israel is the capital of innovation with a soul. Yeah. Now, sometimes uh, innovation or some of the investments or technologies don't necessarily take off. And you probably learned that a lot as a venture capitalist, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book uh, your first I think it was your first professional investment. Uh, it was called um, Picture Vision in 1995. Uh, tell us a little bit about that company. Uh, I don't I didn't know of it before reading about it in the book uh, and, and the entire experience of of why you've invested it, why you uh, invested in it, and then what the process was like. Yeah, you know, we so freely share digital images online today and on WhatsApp and on iMessage that, that we forget that this was once really hard to do. The first guy, people in the world to enable the sharing of digital images, and I'll explain what that means in a second, was this company PictureVision started in a suburb outside of Jerusalem called Givat Zev by, by three people, a guy named Yaakov and Yaakov, Elliot Jaffe, and Phil Gar Garfinkel. And um, and this was a days before digital cameras, so cameras still had film in them. Uh, hopefully, some of your listeners will know what film is. And uh, cameras had film. Actually, with with these young people, uh, this this film thing is like coming back because it's like a nostalgia thing for them. I, I literally oh yeah it. yeah it's weird. I haven't seen that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like um, old Polaroid type things are coming back. 
just because I think everybody's on Instagram. So this is, this is something they do all the time, right? With their phones that they're just like, oh, this is like kind of cool now. We have like real little that they can instantly pull out. And I saw someone the other day with, you know, one of those disposable cameras that they're going to oh. take in and get filmed. And I said, what's going on? And these are people in their 20s. So um, I don't know. It's just funny. But anyway, getting back to your point, yes. I love that. So if they know what film is, don't know you say they get negatives out of film. I, by the way, when I was a kid, I had my own darkroom. Um, that was that was one of my hobbies as a kid. I used to smell the house up with chemicals to develop pictures and, and negatives. And so um, you just have to take the negatives. We put them in the Nikon negative scanners and, and turn them digital. And this is 1995. It's really, really the early months of the Internet. And I go to someone introduced me to Yaakov who couldn't raise money. And uh, I had moved to Israel a couple of years earlier. Uh, my family was still in the States, as was my wife. Uh, my parents were moving to Israel around that time. And um, and I see this magical thing where you could take a negative and upload it to this thing called the Internet, like took like two minutes to paint it on the screen. Um, and then someone on the other side of the world could see it. And I go, that is amazing. Uh, remarkable, you know, and, and this will accelerate, I guess, over time. Um, and so we ended up raising like 600 grand for for them and invested money we didn't have in them. Uh, and it was bought by AOL and Kodak initially and then Kodak entirely afterwards for like $250 million, um, which was a number I did not account. And, um, you know, the investors did extraordinarily well on the, the angel investors did extraordinarily well on that. And even the venture capitalists, I think, made seven or eight times their money. And um, it was a remarkable lesson because both Elliot and, and Yaakov had, had family abroad, and I did too. And I think this was like an inspired mission. How do you connect through people through pictures? This is before people kind of touched up their digital images on Instagram to look good. This was, you know, actually, yeah. you know, real life images that felt authentic that you could send to your family. And um, uh, it was just, it, it was an amazing process that in two, two and a half years, you could kind of invent a category and sell a company and, 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 and you know, and, and advance a mission. The, the unfortunate thing about it, by the way, is that Kodak, whose film union was like resisting digitization at the time, uh, really helped shut it down uh, after it was acquired. And, you know, sad story about Kodak, they ended up going bankrupt, right? So um, yeah. they missed this revolution. You talk in the book about how venture capital is a business steeped in faith, faith that the future will be better, faith in people, entrepreneurs, and change makers. Um, how does your Jewish faith and faith in God generally relate to the faith that you must have in this career field? I think people of faith in general think the future is better. And I think um, there is a lot of narrative today about how the future is going to be a lot worse. And that doesn't mean there aren't bumpy roads. It's hard for people who's gone through the Holocaust to not think that there are bumpy roads along the way. And so there are really tragic and terrible things that can happen on the way. But in general, we're on a positive path to the future. I don't think anyone wants to trade places with people who lived 100 years ago, before there were medicines, before there was, uh, you know, penicillin, before there was internet. You know, if we had this pandemic before there was Zoom, the hit would have been a lot worse. If we had this pandemic before you could develop mRNA vaccines, right, this would have been a lot worse. So I don't think there's anybody out there, despite what they tell you, who would really like to trade places with people who lived 100 years ago. So the future is getting better. Um, and therefore, you invest in entrepreneurs because they make the future better. And sometimes it takes a long time and there are ups and downs. And, you know, it's a real roller coaster to be an entrepreneur. And um, but if you have a belief in an optimism and a resilience to get through it, that the future is better, this is, there's, there's no better place to be than being an entrepreneur and venture capitalist because you can create the future and you can create that better future. And and and. You know, that's my view. And to be candid, I, I'm, I think newspapers like to sell things through pessimism and, you know, the future is going to be a lot worse. But the reality is the future is generally gets better. And uh, sometimes you don't see it because it's unevenly distributed. And sometimes you don't see it because there are bad pockets in history, really bad pockets, like I mentioned yeah, before. Sure. But it's getting well, better. You know, that was one of the reasons I started this podcast about six years ago is that I started coming across to the different work I was doing in, in different realms. Uh, just meeting a lot of people in business and entrepreneurship and just thinking, wow, these people have incredible stories. How can we bring, how can I help bring these stories to more people? So podcast was that platform. Luckily we had the technology to do it. It seems like everyone's got a podcast now. Six years ago it was a little newer. You're ahead um, of your time. Yeah, just recently I just started a new community called Fearless Journeys. 
and it is basically a community that's going to connect people that have been on my podcast, connect uh, some of the uh, people maybe listening or people who are either aspiring or ascending entrepreneurs with uh, role models, people like yourself and, um, and people who can, can have something to say and teach them. So every month we're doing group coaching sessions. We're having book clubs and live book club sessions, and we're also taking group trips. So the Fearless Journeys also has a travel component to it. Well, you're welcome in Israel and, and at our Shabbat table. That's awesome. Well, we'll, we'll come to Israel eventually. I uh, got to get a group uh, ready, to, ready to go there. Um, and, and hopefully one day we will use your book in our book club as well, because I think it's a fantastic book. I, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I, uh, I hope to actually use some of the concepts, maybe even the book itself in uh, my classes as I teach entrepreneurship and innovation. I also, uh, this past summer, taught some classes in a prison, believe it or not, in South Florida. Um, and I'm going to continue doing that um, to some degree in the future. And God bless I, you for that. That's amazing. <laughs> Thanks. And I, uh, I was just, when I was reading this book, I was thinking how this book would really be enlightening to people in prison who are not just trying to learn economics, and, and, but also trying to learn about, you know, the purpose, the moral purpose uh, behind their lives and behind, you know, what they bring to into their into that world. You know, in the forthcoming book uh, that's coming out in Hebrew first on 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 numbers, right? So, the fourth book of the Bible, uh, fourth out of fifth book of the Bible. I have I have a long piece there on uh, the Jewish approach to um, how how civic society punishes or deals with its criminals. Um, and why jail is a really bad idea and uh, why in, in the Bible there is no jail. Um, it, there's one case where there is a jail in the, in the Bible is a particular case. Um, uh, and but but for criminals, even people who who are engaged in manslaughter, etc., there is rehab and not jail. And I think this expresses a certain amount of faith in the human spirit to rehabilitate itself. Um, and, and, and to repent and what the societal obligation is to some of those people. And so uh, we'll see how it comes out. I, I imagine it'll be controversial, but there's a lot of talk about reform of the criminal justice system right now in the United States, and maybe this will contribute something to it. There is, you know, obviously I think one of the big things is to prevent people, right? Put people behind bars so you keep the rest of society safe from possible, you know, in, in, intruders into their lives. Uh, but the, the same point, they are still people, they're human beings, they made a mistake. As I said, when I talked to them, you know, uh, you guys are all in here because you made a mistake. And you know what, everybody else outside these bars, we are all just one mistake away from being in here too. So that's the only thing that separates us from you. But you can when what you need to do is prepare right now for your life outside, where you're going to have to make lots of lots of decisions that you're not making inside prison because people are making those decisions for you right now, and and when you get outside those 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 decisions can't you, they got to be right ones right or else you're going to be back, back in here. Um, but economics is really the study of 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 dis decisions that are made between people in society in in a way. Um, getting getting back to uh, just the last couple questions because I know your time is limited. I appreciate you being on here. Um, you. Speaking of morality and, and economics, you, you, you actually do talk about something positive as well for the future, um, that there's a, been a recent trend toward ethical investing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, in general, uh, there's a lot of push right now to things called ESG, uh, environmental, social, and good governance uh, investing, which I think is really positive that people are starting to take these into account. I much prefer to think about this in terms of longer term value. And more importantly, even than that, is uh, that the that the principles are built into the business themselves. Part of ESG uh, is what I would call kind of a sideline of the business. Do you achieve your environmental goals, even if they're not part of the business by offsets or whatever it is? And I'm not belittling that at all. I think it's really important. But I think to the extent you can build these into the products it makes the companies themselves much more valuable. It doesn't just unleash new capital pools, which are kind of after ESG investing, but rather makes the products more long term and the companies more valuable uh, over the long term. It's, it's hard to argue with good governments, good governance, obviously. But um, uh, and so uh, the entrepreneurs I've kind of looked at are people who, who, who wear the, the, you know, call it the heart or the principles, the timeless principles uh, are built into the product and the brand 
uh, rather than external to it. But you know, this all of this is, is going in the right direction, uh, I think. And um, but we need to be also be able to quantify it. And I think human beings with their pocketbooks are, are a good quantification mechanism rather than the government. Yeah, for sure. By the way, at the top of the, uh, or early, a little earlier in the podcast, I mentioned the book, Thou Shalt Innovate. The author is Avi Jorish. Um, so I believe he lives right there in Israel. And um, uh, it's, it's also all about how I Israeli ingenuity repairs the world. It's really fascinating. Uh, speaking of books, uh, so I have two last questions for you. Uh, one is, um, any favorite books or books that you can re recommend to people uh, listening uh, to the Agents of Innovation podcast? Uh, I love, I'll give you a few. I, I love the book Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, uh, one of the founders of, of Pixar. That's one of my, my, my favorites. Um, there's another great book I recommend by my friend Parag Khanna called Connectography, which is like a mind altering book of how you think about the connectivity uh, of the world. Um, anything written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away, um, is is really worth reading and i'm i'm halfway through uh neil ferguson's uh new book um his name escapes me right now um doom which i think is pretty interesting i find him in general a pretty interesting uh writer um i could go on um yeah well the black swan by, by by nicholas nasim talib as well as anti-fragile um really important books um and obviously the bible <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, starting with the book of Genesis, which again, I just have to say you did an amazing job. Uh, I mean, I think from a biblical perspective alone, looking at uh, this uh, in a new way. And really, I think, you know, the one thing um, I like to often say to people, the more I read scripture, um, the more things jump out at me that, you know, it's almost like when you read, when you read a good book, any book, but I mean, boy, scripture is just loaded with so much. And when you read it just, and so, and then when you get scholars and people like yourself who are able to go and really uh, bring out things new to us that don't conflict, right? It's not like you're, you're coming up with some new uh, way to, you know, start a new religion or something like that by looking at these things in a different way. No, you're just, you're layering something else on and what we can learn and you're doing it uh, in, in an economic view. And I, it's funny, I think at the very beginning, I want to say it's the first line of your book, you said your wife accuses you or something of, uh, of, of looking at everything through an economic lens. And I was like, gosh, even the Bible, right? Um, so, but, 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 but uh, you know, there's a lot to be said. I mean, like I said to the prisoners, like every, all the interactions between human beings is economics, right? And, uh, you know, Francisco, we spend most of our day at work and doing the economy. It's what we do. Right. And they did then too. Yeah, so you think you know God might have something to say to us about about that, right? About how, those interactions, and He clearly does. And you've really brought that out here uh, in your book, uh, Tree of Life and Prosperity. Um, so, Michael Eisenberg, thanks for being on. What I'm going to give you one last uh, close, and also if you, any parting advice you'd like to give to maybe some aspiring uh, entrepreneurs or or current entrepreneurs, and and maybe that advice comes from. Uh, from a venture capitalist like yourself. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you for having me. This was really a wonderful conversation. And uh, I do hope to host you here in Israel with uh, whatever travel group uh, you bring here. Um, you know, parting piece of advice, have children. Um, and reason to have children is you learn to uh, love people unconditionally, uh, adapt to the diversity uh, of different people and, and, and different kids and be optimistic about their future and plan for a better future. Because I think um, we need as many people as possible engaged in creating a better future. Yeah, that's, well, that's great advice. And I'm sure my parents are listening to that right now. Go to Francisco, have some children. Uh, so anyway, uh, thanks so much uh, for your, uh, your time here, Michael. And uh, I am looking forward uh, to going back to Israel, connecting with you. And, and bringing people uh, from the Fearless Journeys community to Israel so we can learn from you. And, uh, and you obviously will discover the, 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 the land of the Bible, but also yeah. uh, all the land. And the economy. And the economy, everything that's going on uh, right now in Israel, uh, one of the most innovative places on the planet. So thanks, Michael Thank Eisenberg, for being on here. Thanks so much. Goodbye This is not
feels like As my place gets taken by the rearview mirror It holds the view of you until you disappear How it would be Getting good. 